0: d
1: Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk about women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I'm Elsia. And I'm Lauren. And your introduction
0: sounded like you were over, like hunched over a cauldron for some oh. reason. It was a very like, double, double, mm-hmm. welcome to the podcast kind of voice. Oh, good. Well, that's
1: perhaps... Thematic? Is it thematic? A little tiny bit thematic. Sort of. We're stepping kind of into the occult tonight. Woohoo! But before we do... Before we do. Okay. How are you? Oh look, recovering.
0: <laughs> uh, last time we recorded we were both a bit sick. Since then I took a turn. Yeah. And I don't have much of a voice. It's come back, actually. Yeah. It's better than it was. So I'll just, you know, I'll just husk my way through tonight's episode. Good. How are you? Oh, much better. I was very well, sick. Fucking good for you. And hey? I've recovered. Oh, lady down. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Terrific. But anyway, let's not dwell. It's no time for dwelling. What is it time for, Lauren? It's Pamela Coleman-Smith time. Oh, my God. This is such an exciting time. This is so exciting. We've been looking forward to this
1: time for a while, haven't we? We certainly have. Pamela Coleman-Smith is a figure that I've been interested in for a number of years. Like, I don't remember how old I was when I got my first tarot deck, but my mum had a Rider-White-Smith tarot deck when I was a kid growing up. And so I have been familiar with... That part of her work for most of my life, but here's the question: Did you know about her though? Not know,
0: not her biography.
1: No, See, that's um, it, isn't it? Because, exactly.
0: So obviously, we're talking about the artist who illustrated that particular mm. deck of tarot, and that's what she's most—that's what most for. people know
1: her for. Yeah, yeah. and but yeah, her yeah. name was not even associated with the deck until yeah. very recently, and
0: that's what I think is the interesting thing. Like you know, so many people interested in the tarot, so many people know of the most common, popular deck that exists Mm.
1: but don't know the woman behind those illustrations and it's really important because this deck was so foundational in determining what contemporary tarot looks like today Yeah, definitely the symbolism of the deck i mean illustrating the minor arcana wasn't a thing really until the rider white smith deck so it's been hugely influential in the way that tarot has evolved over the last century yeah I'm so excited to talk about a bit of tarot. But, of course, there's lots more to her than that, isn't there, Lauren? So much more. She obviously has associations with the tarot, and that branches into quite a number of other really fascinating areas. We are in Swedenborganism here, which I don't know if anyone knows very much about, but I can break that down for you soon, into the hermetic order of the golden dawn. Again, something else you've said over a cauldron. (laughs) (laughs) That's because this is real cool occult stuff. This is that kind of Rosicrucian magic mm. mysticism. This is where, I mean, Alistair Crowley, he's very famous, probably the yeah. most famous member of the Golden Dawn. And then W.B. Yeats was a very famous member of the Golden Dawn. We'll get more into that. She was also a synesthetic artist, so That's she painted music pictures. Yeah. And some say that she did have this kind of psychic connection in her paintings as well, which also accounts perhaps for some of the symbolism that we see oh, so in her paintings and in the tarot she was a suffragette and a feminist oh my god and how are we going to cover all in <laughs> our episode? luckily we had some help this week we were so fortunate to chat with elizabeth foley o'connor who is one of the collaborators on a stunning book it's beautiful it's a beautiful book isn't it the oh. yes this big kind of a4 size like coffee table type book hardcover biography of pamela coleman smith which was published by um Stuart kaplan who happens to be the publisher of the tarot deck that's right and he has the largest collection of pamela coleman smith art and letters and correspondence and everything so these people know what they're talking about elizabeth folio connor she has been researching pamela common smith for quite a long time and i sat down and chatted with her so we're going to hear from one of the like foremost experts of pamela common smith and yeah fuck i'm just so excited to dig deep into this one that sounded so academic at the end yeah fuck yeah well, So <laughs> <laughs> get into it well woo. this is where you know our listeners who've been with us for a while, they know this is where all of our greatest loves intersect.
0: We're hoping that you're as excited right? as we are. We've got yeah.
1: someone who's oh, I forgot to mention someone who was involved in the publishing industry. That's but we'll get to that. I'm sorry. All right. I'm it's just okay. saying, there's so many intersections that we find really amazing and we're super excited. Well, where should we start? Where should okay. we start? Okay. Let's let's look,
0: let's calm down. Let's bring that (laughs) excitement, let's bring it back into the room, back into the room.
1: Lauren, where do we start? Okay, we're going to start with her birth as we start with all of our women. She was born in Pimlico in central London to American parents. Charles Porter-Smith, who was a merchant uh, originally from Brooklyn. His father was the first Brooklyn mayor, Cyrus Porter-Smith, and his wife, Corrine Coleman, who has her own really amazing history. Her mother's family were also publishers. Her maternal grandmother was an author of children's books, a lot of French and German fairy tales. Um, She was also a publisher and bookseller. So, yeah, basically she's from quite a a prominent Brooklyn family Mm. in one side quite involved in politics, the other side quite involved in art publishing, and also they were Swedenborgans which is going to come up again later. Yeah.
0: Um, so they're moneyed. Then it's not like she's she's not growing up on the streets here. Not quite.
1: No. Not quite on the streets. And actually something that's sort of a testament to that. Elizabeth told me. By the time she was in her early 20s, she'd taken 23 transatlantic voyages. Wow. Um, the first one when she was just three years old. So she was very well-traveled. Yeah. Um, her family traveled a lot, which is why she – was born in England, but when she was quite young, the family moved to Jamaica. So she was 10 in 1888. The family moved to Jamaica because her father got a job with the East India Improvement Company. He was working on the railway. He was working on the railway.
0: Yeah. I've been working on the railroad, etc.
1: Yeah. Now, and her time in Jamaica seems to have been super, super formative for her and created this lifelong fascination both with the country and its stories.
0: Yay. Folklore times?
1: Folklore times. They're my
0: favourite kind of times. Yeah.
1: Hugely influential with the folklore, and I'm going to kind of go a bit deeper into that in a moment. But she was sort of back and forth between Jamaica and New York as a child, and we don't know, look terribly much about the details of her life in Jamaica, except to say that they were very formative. But when she was 15, she moved back to New York to attend the Pratt Institute. Right.
0: So she's in Jamaica for like just for that five kind of years, yes. right? Those very five formative years. Very though. important Because you think about that stuff that happens between like 10 and 15 mm. That stuff shapes you. Absolutely, that's the stuff that makes you yep. who you are, and who you carry that stuff with you forever. So I'll be very interested to see how, indeed. Yes, and it she did return
1: to, to Jamaica. So she moved to New York to attend the Pratt Institute, but her family was still okay. Um, so she's
0: gone on her own to school.
1: She's going to study art and illustration. So, um, she was. Ah, ve- la <laughs> Very nice. Oh, says the woman who did a PhD in creative writing.
0: Yeah, but not when I was 15. (laughs) I had to go through a whole lot of shit in my life before I got to that point. Very true. Mate, I'll have you know. (laughs) Anyway.
1: Well, she was very influenced by the Fion de siècle. symbolism. Beautiful. I don't know. Say that again. (laughs) Say it again, Lauren. No. Okay. (laughs) And romanticism and the kind of arts and craft movement Mm -hmm. that had been quite popular. She did quite well. Some of her posters were published in the Century magazine poster exhibit. But then in 1896, unfortunately, her mother died and she had to return to Jamaica to help her father, help him run the household, which is a little bit. Hey, that's what happens. It is. She and her father were really close, Mm. by the way. They had a really good relationship. So she did kind of take on some of these domestic duties, but she also liked to roam around the place.
0: So can I just ask, while we're talking about her schooling, so she's already here, she's already starting out as an artist. So the art that she's making now, does some of this still exist for us to see? Because this is one of those episodes where you should be definitely, you should be looking up images as Mm -hmm. we speak so Uh,
1: even better if you can get your hands on the copy on that book of Stuart Kaplan's biography that is full of her illustrations so many lovely beautiful illustrations Mm.
0: in that so from this very early stage is she already exhibiting stuff through the school yeah she's exhibiting at the school so she was already at a young age being recognized Mm. for her talent for her skill
1: yeah absolutely she was considered to be I guess I want to say precocious. She was regarded as being quite original and very talented, but she was pretty independent and she really liked to do things her own way. And so she was kind of moving back and forth between Jamaica and New York at this time. So going back to Jamaica, looking after her dad, going to New York to continue her studies. Mm. So she's painting, drawing posters. She sold some of her posters to, like, local shops back in Jamaica and in 1897 when she was 19 she had her first feature exhibition at William Macbeth's Gallery in New York and she sold four watercolours. At 19? At 19, yes. Precocious is the word. Let's go with precocious. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. When really young people have this much success, it's kind of hard to – not feel like precocious <laughs> to me just has slightly negative connotations
0: yeah because it's saying you're a little bit
1: you're a little bit too good too bit big, big too, too big for big, your boots yeah that's i like
0: that saying yeah that's a good saying yeah. <laughs> but no i think that's good like okay she's young
1: she's talented she's out there this, this is great so another thing that perhaps adds to that idea of her maybe being a little bit precocious is that she figured after about two years of study She wasn't really learning that much from the Pratt Institute that interested her. She just wanted to do her own thing. So she was like, eh, and left. Hey, and good
0: for her. Because something else I was just thinking, you know, is precocious, is that something we apply more to women than we apply more to men? You know? Yes. I think young women who excel are much more likely to be mm. labeled precocious and men are like
1: young geniuses
0: yeah exactly because women are stepping outside of their, as mm. you said too big for their boots they're stepping outside of their role
1: so hey this is great okay i like it yeah because would anyone label someone like malay the youngest student at the which institute at the royal
0: academy yeah at
1: 11 would they call him preco- that's precocious that's pretty precocious i'd call him precocious yeah
0: but probably a lot of people <laughs> would just call him a genius yeah. wouldn't they <laughs> well they do well yeah (laughs) but look the point of the story is she's successful at a young age on her own terms and this is impressive from
1: the outset that's correct so yeah she left the pratt institute and as i said she's sort of back and forth between new york and jamaica but again it seems like jamaica is the place that's really having the influence on her art and her work lauren
0: is it Jamaican her (laughs)
1: I'm sorry. that's terrible. I'm so sorry. Don't. I
0: just turned into a dad. Don't
1: apologize. No, it's a
0: dad joke. It's a pun. It's a good pun. Okay. Yeah. It's not an original <laughs> pun, but let's carry on All anyway.
1: Right. One could say that. Yeah. Perhaps. So, as we said, she was really interested in the stories, uh, the folklore of Jamaica, and this first comes to the fore through something I think is very very cool. And that is through her interest in miniature theatre. Oh,
0: this is a kindred spirit.
1: <laughs> I, oh When God. I was doing this research, I was just like, oh, my God, Alicia is going to be so down with this aspect of... Um, miniature theatre? Yes. And she would make these little tiny wooden figures and paint them. And she made sets. She had this like little kind of square theatre and she wrote the plays. She made elaborate sets. An 18-inch square theatre is what it was. She'd move the figures. She had like sets with grooves and strings so she could pull them along. By 1899, she had 300 figures. Oh, that's
0: amazing,
1: mm-hmm. and she started to give public performances. Um, so Gardner Teal in Russian Pencil writes, "I have never seen a more gorgeous presentation on any stage."
0: Oh, miniatures! I just I love them so much. Yeah, definitely. Like I've made, I make my own. Well, I used to. Never mind. Doesn't matter. No don't do it.
1: Mean, No do. No, no do. Do.
0: <laughs> See, the reason we're a kindred spirit about this is because I, I used to make dioramas
1: <laughs> I know. I oh, know. They're adorable. Isn't that
0: sweet? Yeah, yeah you yeah, should yeah.
1: make a theatre. I should.
0: I should. Well, I used to make, when I was a kid, I had a Peter Pan theatre. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was like one of those proper ones, like it was cut out from a book, but it was that same sort of thing. It was all that cardboard, you make it yourself. Yeah. And there were all these different Peter. Anyway, we don't need to go down this path. But, but like, if, rest assured, she's doing something amazing. If
1: it. listeners are interested in seeing evidence of oh. Alicia's <laughs> love for miniatures, you can actually see a stop motion animation. <laughs> <laughs> that comes from this miniature tradition. But
0: probably more importantly, it's you should. It's on
1: Patreon.
0: More importantly, you should probably look up Pamela Coleman Smith's. Ooh. Yeah. Of course. She probably would have made claymation if that had been. An if option. the
1: technology had been available, yeah. I have no doubt in my Definitely. mind she would have been into it. Yeah. And her father and the servants would help her with special effects. <laughs> And musical accompaniment. Um, Her most popular play was Henry Morgan, so she was really inspired by a lot of the kind of pirate tales of the Caribbean. Another reason we are are kindred spirits. Hundreds of people attended. She had a cast of forty pirates, including Henry Morgan, of course. Nine guardsmen, multiple children, and quote three Indians with feathered headdress. (laughs) Now, significantly, in her version of the tale, and this is also setting up a theme that runs through a lot of her creative work is that she presents Morgan's success as not necessarily having too much to do with his own bravery as it is the quote quickness and ingenuity of the female characters Ah. in her miniature theater. She was not just inspired by the piracy tales of the Caribbean, but also in presenting Jamaican folklore Mm -hmm. And this is something that I suppose kind of has larger ramifications in terms of how she started to construct her own identity and how her identity was perceived by others
0: because this is a big question around her isn't it like mm. this question of race is a big one that's come up more recently in scholarship it's around returned
1: really recently yeah. there's a lot of commentary particularly online and i don't think that's surprising at the moment when we're in a kind of a social place where we are recognising how incredibly undervalued the art and work of women of colour has been. So not yet, not just women, but women of colour particularly. And so this has become a big question as more and more people start to recognise the potential biracial identity of Pamela Coleman-Smith. Now I should say this is not something we know for sure, but it's possible and it's important to consider it. And this is something that I chatted with Elizabeth about. This isn't really necessarily just a modern question, though. It is something that her contemporaries were kind of fascinated, if that's the right word, by. Like, she was perceived as being quite ethnically ambiguous. And a lot of this reflects some very outdated kind of attitudes, but um, there's this one quote from John Yates who is the father of W.B. Yates, Mm -hmm. William Butler Yates, and he had this to say about Pamela Coleman-Smith. Pamela Smith and her father are the funniest-looking people, the most primitive Americans possible, but I like them very much. Her work, whether a drawing or the telling of a piece of folklore, is very direct and original and therefore sincere, its originality being its naivete. I should feel safe in getting her to illustrate anything. She looks exactly like a Japanese. Every time I read that, my stomach twists. I'm like, oh, it's a visceral reaction, which I think tells us hopefully how far we've come. And I asked Elizabeth Foley O'Connor about this, and she had this to
2: say. You know, I do think, though, that that quote really illustrates how Pamela Coleman Smith encapsulated for so many Anglo-Americans that she encountered all of these kind of primitive fears and interests that were really popular, or maybe not popular, but very kind of current in the early 20th century, right? All of this as the colonial project was bringing all, you know, more interest about, or more knowledge about all these places around the world that Britons and Americans, you know, really were only vaguely aware. She fed into, I think, a lot of that interest in the sense that she was exotic. And they, you know, the the constantly people and critics, you describe her as being naive, but imaginative and creative. And she very much fed into that.
1: So she was in her own time, thought to be perhaps mixed race. She was described as maybe having Native, Native American blood or of being of Asian descent. And, of course, because this is the late 1800s, um, early 1900s, these associations often come with really animalistic and primitive Mm. attributes she's described as a brown squirrel a Chinese baby and her artistic style is described as having this kind of otherworldly mystical nature she's attributed to being ethereal primitive and naive and again it's it's like it's those associations that we so often see in that binary between like white and people of colour, that white people are doing things intentionally because yeah. they're genius and, well, people of colour must have this kind of primal connection to something else and yeah. that's why they're so good, you know, and it's. So then I wonder,
0: so this question of her actual race then, I mean this comes down to she's because she's an artist, because she has these particular skills and abilities and because she's kind of being positioned as this ethereal, otherworldly sort of thing. Is this idea of race because she's basically being othered? She's being Mm. lumped with this idea of the other, right? Is this why her race is often a question? Or is it because there is some kind of proof of her mixed race?
1: That's, I think, the billion-dollar question. Right, yeah. At the moment, I think it's maybe a little of column A and a Mm. little of column B, and I think Elizabeth can perhaps better answer this question.
2: I don't know. You know, I found her birth certificate, you know, she is registered to the people who are believed to be her parents. There was, I mean, looking at pictures of her, I can see how people, you know, might have interpreted that she, but I don't know, you know, and honestly, you know, to me, it's, you know, I I don't think we're going to be able to exhume her body and do DNA tests, right? So I think what's most interesting is how her reception and then how she positioned her identity and her art in relationship to that reception. But I mean, you know, you can look around on the internet and there's a million different theories. Well, and I think there's been so many women and especially women of color who have been neglected for a variety of reasons, right? And I mean, personally, I do think that Pamela was probably of some sort of mixed race, but I don't know what that was and I have no proof, right? So, you know, I think to some degree it's, you know, speculation. I can say that her mother lied about her age a few times on different documents, but women lied about their ages back then. (laughs) I do think she did try to kind of play off some of these stereotypes racist assumptions of her identity. One way she did this was her Jamaican and Nancy performances.
0: So you mentioned before about the miniature theatre and the, the folk tales and the folklore that she performed in, this, in these theatres, right? So can you tell us a bit more about these Anansi stories and the folklore that she actually mm. did present to these
1: performances? Yeah, so the Jamaican folklore made up a really big part of her work. So first of all, she was really interested in retelling these stories, and she did this in a in a number of ways. In 1899, she published the Anansi Stories as a collection. So it was a collection of Jamaican folk tales that she both illustrated and kind of well wrote, in the sense that she sort of transcribed them mm-hmm. and. In Interestingly, she
0: um, so, so in th- that same
1: kind of way that the Brothers Grimm collected their stories, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. Except that she maintained a kind of Jamaican patois as well, mm-hmm. which I think kind of contributed to the idea that she was Jamaican and of Jamaican heritage. Um, so she's writing the language how it sounds. Exactly, yeah. yes. And I imagine, again, if we're talking about that kind of five-year period where she's between 10 and 15, this is how she would have heard those stories. This yeah. is, you know, those stories in – how they sounded, not just what they represented to her, but how they sounded to her. And that, my God, can you imagine how unusual that would have been in – not in England at the time because – you know, Jamaican. England had, a,
0: England had its own dialects that were already being yeah. represented in different ways through, you know, like Dickens would often write yeah. how the how the language sounded. He'd actually yeah. write it phonetically, and that sort of thing.
1: Exactly. And while this was pre the kind of Windrush generation, which is the mm. Jamaican like migration to England, yeah. it's not like there were no Jamaicans around like it's a colonial state Um, but at the same time it would have been unusual particularly within the social circles that she's in and her spin on these tales is also really interesting so remember before i mentioned that with the henry morgan tale she kind of emphasized the role of women Mm. in the stories yeah she's doing the same thing here her the folklore exactly so in her versions the female characters have far more agency And her illustrations depict the character of Nancy, who's a traditional African folklore character and one of the most important characters of Caribbean folklore. He's a trickster, but Coleman Smith kind of plays with his gender Mm. identity and makes him this gender indeterminate spider as opposed to a patriarchal tiger. And so she's shifted this character quite significantly. And this... Gender fluidity and female agency had a huge part in a lot of her own, how she styled herself and how she. Mm-hmm.
0: Lauren, is she a feminist revisionist? An early feminist revisionist, would you say? Alicia, look,
1: could we? I think we could. I think we can say yes. Can we say yes? I think we can collect her under our umbrella. Let's do it. I Let's think. Bring her in. We can invite her into the club. Hey awesome <laughs> it's a fun club <laughs> and on that because the same year she published a few other collections there was the golden vanity and the green bed and the widdekombe and fair and fair vanity which were kind of based on english ballads and folklore so mm-hmm. she's not just interested in jamaican folklore she's also interested in english folklore and particularly in irish, irish folklore. folklore mythology yeah. and we'll come to that soon but in these in of widdekombe fair particularly Like this is set at a dance. And in the biography, Elizabeth Foley O'Connor says that her depictions of the female figures defy Victorian female stereotypes. She shows them as boldly staring at men, as teasing as they Mm. dance, of taunting, of being bold. And we see this again later in her life with her involvement in the suffrage movement. It actually comes into a whole bunch of aspects of her life. So meanwhile, she's also started hanging out with the legendary Ellen Terry. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> a woman who we need to give an episode to. And her daughter, Edie Craig. Yes. Who, if you don't know, was a very famous Shakespearean actress of this period.
0: And who, by the way, I feel like that photos of her as a young woman look very much like photos of my mother as a young Ooh.
1: woman. Just thought I'd throw that out
0: there. Nice. I just, when I was a young girl, I remember putting those things together and being like, well, Hey. When you were and, a
1: girl. Yeah. I don't oh, know. Wow. I don't know why that Did just Did you associate me. yourself with Edie Craig? No, I didn't,
0: but <laughs> maybe I should have. Maybe you should. Maybe I should. Now, now I will.
1: <laughs> so those two became quite tight. And actually, so Pamela Coleman Smith for a period of her life went by the name Pixie. Yes. And that name is going to come up in a moment. Let me tell I think Pixie is a very fucking telling. apt name. It is a very telling name. And it. Ellen Terry was the one who bestowed this name upon her. Really? Yes. Good
0: work, Ellen Terry.
1: I've just got a little bit of history about who she's hanging out with, and then we're going to come back to the Announcy Tales. Tell us about the identity. gang so we
0: can, we can have, like, fear of missing
1: out from this gang. Well, if you really want to talk about gang FOMO. I have gang FOMO already. We've got Ellen Terry. Oh. And then we've also got Bram Stoker, oh. Henry Irvine, oh. the Yates. Oh. So WB All the Yates. Yates. And Jack Yates. And she starts hanging out with these guys. Now, sadly... Her father died when he was only 53. And as I said, the two of them were really close, Mm. but it did mean that Pamela Commonsmith smith was sort of, I guess, free to travel again now. And Ellen Terry invited Pixie home with her. So she traveled from New York to England along with Henry Irving and Bram Stoker and, She settled in here really quite well. She started getting involved in the theatre scene, which makes sense because that's the crew that Mm -hmm. she's hanging around with. That's the gang. Um, She's hanging out with Ellen Terry's children's theatre projects, helping out behind the scenes of Edie Craig's, like, school theatre. Such fun. And she got herself a flat in South Kensington where she began to hold weekly salons. Oh, she did, didn't she? Anyone who was cool in the early 20th century, was holding a salon. Why don't we just bring salons back? I feel like I brought this up with you a couple of years ago. (laughs) And did I say no? You probably said yes and then we never did anything about it. We should do it. Let's do it. We should hold salons. All right,
0: we're going to do it. Out there, listeners,
1: especially in Adelaide, (laughs) we're going to start salons. Excellent. Oh, we kind of started the salon with the hearth. Does that count? Sort of. It's not really the same. So they... It's not weekly. No. And at these salons, they would all drink the uh, favourite drink of Irish poets, which is Opal Hush. Isn't that a great name? I did not. not, I had no idea that. What is that? What even is it? Claret and lemonade.
0: (laughs) That's a a lot mm, like naffer than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. A lot more
1: naff? Clare and lemonade? A lot more naff than I expected. It's not like... I don't know. I don't um, know. Absinthe and. Yeah, that's what I was um, expecting. Something much more hardcore. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like whiskey at least. All They have a shandy. A shandy.
1: Essentially, it's a fancy shandy. They having themselves a shandy. And they would all gather around and hang out. And she started to perform her Anansi stories. Now, J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan, he says, I know of no more delightful entertainment for children than yours. So quaint, so simple, and it is the prettiest of pictures, the children sitting agape around you. So this was not at the salons. She started performing these publicly as well. She was really quite popular, actually. But in her telling of these stories, she's definitely leaning into this kind of ambiguous and identity that she started to create for herself, not just through the Jamaican part of the stories, but also in the gender element as well. Mm. So she's quite fluid in terms of how she is representing her ethnic identity, her sexual identity, her gender identity. And I think that's why a name like Pixie mm. is yes. so apt Yeah. For her. And again, I want to bring in Elizabeth Foley O'Connor on this because she had
2: some really great things to say about it. What's interesting, I think, about the name Pixie is how Pamela really created a whole identity for herself about it. She's very interested, I think, with playing with different received notions of gender. She herself often dressed in very loose flowing clothes, sometimes pants, sometimes not. And she, while did not it's unclear if she identified as a lesbian as uh, Edie Craig or Chris John did, you know, very overtly, but she was very much not interested in con- traditional uh, notions of femininity as, you know, was were the norm in the early 20th century.
1: So at this period of time, she's really starting to be quite overtly ambiguous with her identity in many different ways but at the same time she's playing with a lot of artistic forms as well because she wasn't just illustrating and like we've sort of mentioned she's becoming really quite interested in jamaican folklore telling those kinds of stories she's also illustrating quite a lot she really wants to illustrate irish mythology Mm. and she wanted to work on a collection with wb Yeats. and this sort of led to firstly her becoming actually a little bit frustrated with the publishing world because she wanted to be telling these stories and she wanted to i probably do them her way and, and the publishing world's not so interested in a lady doing that <laughs> and she calls them pigs in some of her writers she writes pigs the publishers are all pigs mm. so that's kind of she felt about them but like any good entrepreneurial young artist she was like you know what i don't need those guys i'm gonna do it on my own yeah enterprising i like it very enterprising mm. innovative young woman do it and so she started up her own publishing forays of course she did which again a woman after her own heart right (laughs) she started the broadsheet and then the green sheaf and these were so with the broadsheet she published that with jack yates W.B. Yeats's yep. brother mm-hmm. between 1902 and 1903. And this kind of came around because of Pamela, Jack and his wife, Cotty's shared love of miniature theatre. Oh, um, such a love. Well, you know, never tell, <laughs> let anyone tell you that such hobbies are frivolous no. and it featured poetry and illustrations by the two artists and other figures in their circle, particularly from the Irish literary v- revival and then in 1903, she started the Green Sheaf, and this was her like independent foray into publishing.
0: Excellent, women-led um, independent publishing foray. Well, apparently she
1: did consult W.B. William Butler Yeats. Well, hey, if you know W.B., you may as well use him. Except <laughs> then she actually just trashed a bunch of his suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> so she's like, "That's also good." Hey, William. Pal, what should I do? You pal. should do this. Nah, uh, actually, <laughs> thanks. Never mind. <laughs> thanks for no thanks. And this was made up of poetry, art, stories, translations, non-fiction, prose—basically your typical literary magazine fair That is yeah. still still what, what you get today. Still, what we try to write and publish, and you know, sometimes successful with, yeah, and sometimes, sometimes not. Just like our friend. Pamela Coleman-Smith, Just like a hundred and something years ago. A woman after our own hearts. She so is. In so many ways. Yeah. She included a lot of work by her circle of contributors, but also expanded it. She also included the dead. The dead? Um okay. By which I don't mean, don't mean that there were... Voices
0: from beyond
1: the grave? Yeah, not necessarily ghosts contributing, unfortunately, but she republished works by um, oh, okay. some of her favourite artists, such as Blake, who... Fair enough is going to be significant in a moment. John Keats. Oh, yeah. And your favorite, Dante Gabrielle Rossetti. Oh, dude, bro. Yeah. Oh, Rossetti. Oh <laughs> worst. And a lot of the themes. So um, some of the issues kind of had these collected themes and genres, a lot of which were about kind of dreams and the supernatural. Um, so if it still existed, let's be honest, I'd probably be submitting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, they were pretty loosely so um, true. put together. Which is also how I got about things. If yeah, I definitely. To, uh, yeah. What's this collection about? Oh, I don't know. Who can say? Whatever I feel like. Unfortunately, as with many of these kinds of literary ventures, it didn't make her much of an income. Gee, what a fucking surprise. Yeah, yes. I, well, Not much else has changed in the yeah, last 100 years. Yeah, nothing's changed in publishing. <laughs> and so she started kind of putting classifieds for herself in the back of the magazine, including ads. <laughs> her <laughs> own magazine. Yeah, that's good. I like it. Including for her and Nancy stories, yeah, advertising those, <laughs> and she's—I mean, unsurprisingly, perhaps started publishing a little bit less frequently because she was feeling a little bit discouraged by the whole process. Gee, you know what that feels like? Except perhaps this led to even bigger dreams because she was not simply satisfied, despite the monetary issues of running her own small publication, she decided to amp it up a notch by beginning her own publishing press. Ooh, hey. So she wrote to again, old mate WB, of her plan to set up a small press that would print small editions of hand colored prints by subscription. So it is a subscription. Of I- illustrations. Uh, collections of, like, whatever it might be, poetry, oh, okay. whatever, mm. with illustrations. They were printed by subscription, so they typically had quite small print runs, you know, 500 copies, for example. She really, really wanted to publish her own edition of, like, Songs of Innocence and Experience, mm. and uh, Yates was going to help her out with that. Unfortunately, that never made it into the world. What's interesting about Blake, though, is that he was a really famous um, Swedenborgian and that's a big part of her life as well. So, was he? Yes. I did not know that about no. him. But so that actually makes there's a lot of mysticism. A lot of sense. Imagery, which I think we can see the parallels in their work. That explains a lot, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm having
0: having a moment of realisation where that makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: Well, maybe this is a good time to talk about Swedenborgianism or Swedenborganism. I'm not sure which pronunciation it is. When's not a good time to talk about Swedenborgianism. Well, eh? do you know anything about it? It's some kind of Christianity. Yeah. That's about all I know. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, standard. Some rando know. version of it. It is a version of Christianity, but it's quite a mystical version of Christianity. And Pamela Coleman Smith's family were Swedenborgians. So she grew up, it's called the New Church, and its they follow the teachings of a Swedish mystic, um, Emanuel Swedenborg. It is technically a branch of Christianity, though their beliefs are really quite... I guess open-minded compared to a lot of mainstream Christian sects. So these they include draw in a lot more of that kind of like a mysticism occult a kind of Exactly. Elements. Yes. So they include teachings such as God has many names depending on the beliefs or religions of the individual. So this is sort of the belief that World religions generally often have very common roots and you might call different things different names, but it's all part of one system.
0: It's very similar to theosophy.
1: Yeah, in a lot of ways it is, yes. Has a lot of overlaps with theosophy and some overlaps with spiritualism as well. They also believe that the Holy Spirit is not God, that the Trinity is not three separate beings but three different aspects of God, that salvation comes by practising what you believe, whatever religion it might be. The afterlife is spiritual and depends on how well you lived in your physical body. Mm. So there are a lot of those kind of, yeah, more mystical, perhaps I think... again there's a lot of overlaps with sort of hermetic ideas it's sort of that non-canon version of christianity
0: so what was the influence then around that spiritual side on her artistic work so how did that play into her Mm. into the actual art that she was producing
1: so as i said it influenced the kind of work that she was interested in publishing yeah in that she was drawn to figures like Blake, who was also a Swedenborgian, apparently, mm. and working in things like Irish mythology with Yeats, but it also, I think, kind of appears a little bit in her illustrations and her yeah, art that's as well. What I,
0: that's what I'm interested in. Like, mm. I want to know about how it manifests in the actual art that she's producing. Well,
1: what's interesting is that she was also apparently synesthetic and. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. And I feel like this is really interesting because as soon as we start to get into synesthesia – In this circle particularly where we've got somebody who is really interested in mythology and that's particularly the symbolism that comes with that sort of mystical and occult sort of stuff, and that's going to come up again in a big way later, as I'm sure is not going to be surprising to anyone because we're talking about the woman who (laughs) illustrated illustrated the tarot, tarot. but she was synesthetic and apparently she first realised this by listening to Bach, which makes sense. At Ellen Terry's house in 1900 Which, also makes sense.
2: <laughs> totally,
1: I think. How can you not be synesthetic listening to bark at Ellen Terry's house? <laughs> she this like became a big part of her art practice. So she used to attend concerts by one of Yeats' friends, uh, the composer Arnold Dolmetsch. I, I hope I've said that correctly. And she would apparently produce as many as 20 to 30 paintings in a single sitting. Yeah, right. Yes. I guess she'd go along to the concerts, she sort of – get herself alone in the corner with a sketchbook. And then when she listened to the music, she would sketch the images that came to her. And then, In the theatre. In the theatre. And yeah. then she'd fill them out later. So in the theatre, she's just sketching, yeah. I guess, the outline, the impression. Mm-hmm. Then she'd go home and, and make them into full images afterwards. Now, Claire Debussy, fucking of course. oh Yeah, yeah. Fucking of Debusy. course. Sure. Uh, he said that her drawings of his compositions were, quote, dreams made visible. That seems very simple lovely. Yeah. Of these images, Pamela says, they are not pictures of the music theme, pictures of the flying notes, not conscious illustrations of the name given to a piece of music, but just what I see when I hear music, thoughts loosened and set free by the spell of sound. Mm. So these images are, uh, like a lot of her previous illustrations, captured that space, I think, between consciousness and unconsciousness. Yeah,
0: yeah that like loose construing of that kind of like what you receiving and then the output that comes onto the paper,
1: yeah. And I think if we also consider her upbringing in a sort of mystical version of Christianity, her interest in folklore, Mm. in symbolism, in mythology, it's also tapping into some of these mythological symbols and themes and kind of mystical stuff, though many of them were also quite everyday. And again, these images... Show women as being active and powerful. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Oh, great. So again,
0: they're at the centre of what she's illustrating. Yes.
1: Yeah. Now, unfortunately, one composer who she just couldn't work with, she did not get any synesthetic images. So she's working with. Yeah. She loves Bach, Debussy. Down on it. Yeah. Not into Wagner. <laughs> oh, that's good. I Wagner like does not For work. Wagner. No synesthetic images come from Wagner. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh partner she said that his music filled her with rage um quote my scalp tingles and my hair pricks i feel so full of rage that i want to crack the heads of the people together like nuts
0: <laughs> is that just because she was forced to sit through like nine hours worth of like meister singers in nuremberg or something is that why <laughs> like... she was so angry maybe who can say who, who, can, who say? can say but
1: I think we've all been driven to anger. By Wagner? By
0: Wagner.
1: <laughs> have, we, have we not? <laughs> now, many of these images were displayed, and this is significant, at photographer Alfred Stieglitz's gallery. Now, that name probably doesn't mean a lot to many of us, but she was the first non-photographer to yeah. be exhibited here. Her exhibition was enormously popular she was she sold most of her works. It was written about extensively by journalists and it was so successful that Stieglitz extended the exhibition by ten days and it then toured to Philadelphia, London, Edinburgh, and then again at Stieglitz's gallery over the next couple of years. So the first non photographic artist. Yes. That's impressive. Yeah. And it was her synesthetic art that made up a lot of this mm. stuff.
0: So I'm interested in this is the stereotypical version of her. I am interested to know how this leads into her illustrating the tarot. Like how Mm. do we then get to this part of her life.
1: Oh, what? It's not surprising to you that somebody who's interested in symbolism, mythology, parative religion, synesthetic art is going to be the person who illustrates the tarot? Look, I'm
0: not surprised by it, but I just want to know. <laughs> I just want to know how it happens. That's all.
1: Yeah, okay, good question. So she became involved with the tarot, first of all, through the hermetic order of the Golden Dawn. Do they still exist? No, sadly, I don't think the Golden Dawn still exists. But I think I mean like there are some like similar organizations around.
0: I would like to gauge our audience's interest in us setting up our own <laughs> like mystical society.
1: Please get the, in touch. Let us know how interested you'd
0: be in getting involved.
1: The Hermetic of Order of the Golden Dawn, too.
0: Yeah, something along those lines. The Hermetic <laughs> Order of Deviant Women. Like, just let us know if you'd be interested. I just want to gauge how that might work out. It'll
1: all just be goddess worship. Fuck yeah.
0: My voice went (laughs) so, if I had
1: a girlfriend, she'd kill me. (laughs) Yeah, it would all be goddess worship and manifesting creative female energy, female mysticism. Let's just just gauge it and then we'll go from there. My dream organization. Let's do it. Okay, great. great.
0: So just going back to Pamela though. But
1: also I think that's just a coven.
0: Okay, that's also
1: <laughs> But Just going back to Pamela before, yeah, 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 I, before yeah, I lose yeah, my sorry, voice sorry. entirely. So she became involved in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn through, again, W.B. Yates. Through old W.B. Old pal, W.B. Yates. So only W.B. introduced Pamela slash Pixie to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in 1901. And there she met a fellow by the name of Arthur Waite. Oh, I see where this is taking us. And now actually what happened within the Hermetica Order of the Golden Dawn was it's kind of, there was a schism. Oh, my God, a schism. It split in two and there was one half which sort of went a little bit more down the occult path. WB went down that way, William, Butley Yates. Off you go, Will. Whereas Pamela and Arthur Waite went down the path of – The independent and rectified rite of the Golden Dawn, which had more of a a kind of Rosicrucian, mystical Judeo-Christian element to it. So it was still more of a, yeah, that Judeo-Christian philosophy at its foundation, as opposed to more of a cult magic, which is where the other side went. I think that
0: comes through in the illustrations too of the tarot. Totally, totally. So do you think then that it's more a combination of all of these different influences that come together to her whole concept of not just religion but mysticism, symbolism, all of this comes together in one sort of great melting pot, Mm. I suppose, because we have a more of a a Christian sort of view of the world that comes together with a folkloric view of the world that comes together with a mythological Mm -hmm. view of the world It all kind of ends up in the
1: same sort of melting pot, doesn't it? Absolutely, which is kind of what Swedenborganism is at its centre, but I think just totally who Pamela
2: Coleman Smith was. And actually Elizabeth speaks to that a little bit as well. Yeah, I do think that... You know, when she was living in Jamaica, she was very interested in obia and other Jamaican mysticism and spiritual practices. And then when she became interested in Irish mythology, she became fascinated with the sid and fairies and all of these other kinds of things. I mean, one of the things she says later in life is that when she first went to Ireland in 1899, that's when she first saw visions. <laughs> and when she first saw fairies and kind of and that later manifested through her synesthesia in the music pictures, but that actually kind of, at least how she talks about it in uh, 1912 as part of that delineator piece, the visions of the fairies actually predated some of this. Um, But I think that's what drew her to the Golden Dawn. Although she did not advance in the Golden Dawn, she became she actually stayed at the level one. But I think it's also what drew her to Roman Catholicism eventually. She converted in 1911, although she was probably attending services before that. And I mean, I did see her Bible, for example, that she had in the later part of her life. And what's fascinating is that there's all these drawings of God and Jesus and various saints. And then mingled among those pages are, you know, the pentacles and different tarot symbolism. So she was very interested in connections between all of these different frames. I don't think it was just she had this kind of synesthesia temperament. But I think she was very interested in connections between things that were often seen as very separate. And I think that this is something that Arthur Waite saw in her as well. Mm. So they got to know each other
1: through, obviously, their branching off together in the Golden Dawn. And he, I think, recognized someone who was quite in tune with the spiritual world and not just in tune with the spiritual world but in tune with that level of symbolism and the way that all of those different things came together. He thought of her as someone who was a bit of a visionary, perhaps a psychic and... I'm sure that the themes and manifestations of her art played a role in this. So, of course, he then asked her to collaborate with him in the tarot deck.
0: Hooray. So that symbolism of the tarot, right. So the tarot is such such an iconic thing now. That particular deck that Mm. she illustrated is so iconic. And the tarot itself has such a... An interesting history, I suppose, because, I mean, it comes from basically like an Italian set of yeah. playing cards. Yeah. And this is something I find really interesting because if have you ever played Italian cards by any no. chance? No. Right. So being involved in Italian family, <laughs> I have. So I find it really interesting that Italian playing cards, if you play Scoppa or briscola, anyone who knows those games at all, the Italian card deck, you have cups, you have diamonds, mm. you have swords, and you have batons basically, right? Right. And that lines up with your wands, Mm -hmm. your pentacles, your cups and your swords of the tarot card. So you can see where this history of tarot comes from. Totally. In terms of the actual card game.
1: That's the minor arcana, really. The minor arcana. Mm -hmm.
0: But then in terms of actually turning that symbolism into something much more spiritual and mystic, this is where... Pamela Coleman-Smith steps in and becomes mm-hmm. so incredibly influential in a way that is not acknowledged or has it's only, Totally or, not. Or none. really has just become – Not historically. Not historically, no. but has more recently become acknowledged yep. and celebrated because it's really her art yep. that crystallises what the tarot is that, all that about. It gives
1: that symbolism to the unique meaning of each of those minor arcana. So totally, like as you said, so before – Basically, before this deck, really only the major arcana were illustrated. And for listeners who aren't really familiar with the tarot, your major arcana are those kind of, I guess, those primary figures. You've got figures like the Fool, the Magician, the Sun. um, The Moon. The Empress. Yeah. And they all have really quite unique significant meanings and then you have the minor arcana which are those decks really the numbers and the suits and she was the one really who infused that meaning into the minor arcana and it's actually a little bit debated about how much influence Pamela Coleman Smith had in her depictions of both the major arcana and the minor arcana some say that that Waite kind of told her what to illustrate, illustrate, Mm -hmm. particularly for the major arcana, sort of what the images needed to be, the symbols that should have been in them. However, many do suggest that she had a lot more freedom over the minor arcana.
2: And I will preface this by saying I am not a tarot expert, right? And Waite does say retrospectively at least that he guided her and he had specific ideas. We do know that the Sola Busca deck uh, was being displayed in the British Library, very close to where she was living at the time, and that she did go and look at it. And so that's one model that she was impacted on. But I think the other is that there are definitely, and Melinda Boyd and others have written a little bit more extensively on this than me, but, you know, there is definitely quite, I think, a bit of evidence that especially in the minor arcana, but even in some of the major arcana, Pamela brought her own interests to bear as well.
1: So nonetheless, Waite and Pamela do seem to have had a shared understanding of the symbolism and the esoteric meaning of each Mm -hmm. card. Mm -hmm. And while she didn't really explicitly talk with anyone about what the images particularly represented, the cards have really both a a kind of obvious and hidden, deeper allegorical meaning. And in the pictorial key to the tarot, White suggests that the symbolism for the cards comes from the Arthurian grail cycle, Mm -hmm. which he wrote about, he wrote that at the same time that they were working on the cards. And Pamela Coleman Smith was also really interested in the Arthurian legend and the arthurian grail cycle she had toured um tintagel the ruins of the castle where king arthur was conceived and this was a big part of like this kind of irish tour that she had taken with her dad when she was much younger so in the arthurian grail cycle christ's passion is associated with the grail the lance the sword and the dish yes which obviously, well, not, maybe not obviously, but correspond with the tarot's four suits of the cups, the wands, the swords, and the pentacles. Scoppa! <laughs> Sorry, that's just me channeling the Italian again. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Now, Paolo Comer Smith also believed the cards were universal and many of the images emphasize the natural world. So each of the suits have also got uh, that association with the elements Mm. there's fire water earth and air which i love i love find like looking especially when you're in the it's
0: really quite there's
1: something quite satisfying about that isn't there totally because it it just adds this extra dimension of meaning yeah you're not just dealing with the suits you've also got the symbolism of the elements got those alchemical yes that alchemical symbolism that comes into it as well i think that I wonder how much of that is an influence, perhaps from kind of the Hermetic Order yeah, of the Golden definitely. Dawn. Mm-hmm. Something else, though, that Pamela Coleman Smith did in the cards that I don't know if people know about was that she used her friends as models. Yeah, um, and so it's really cool. Ellen Terry is the Queen of Wands. Hey, that's my card. Yes, it is. Hey, You're Ellen Terry. I got Ellen Terry. Wow. (laughs) Okay, that makes sense. That's where you get that mother resemblance from. That's so true. Mm. And uh, Ellen Terry's daughter, Edie Craig, is the magician. Um, That's your card. That's my card. Hey. And the king of pentacles. On that notion of, of Edie Craig being the king of pentacles, it's also worthy to know that many of the figures in the cards are kind of androgynous. They are. Really? Yeah. And actually, I think we were just having a conversation last week about one of the cards. I can't remember which one it was, where you and another friend of ours saw read it as male figure oh yes, the hierophant, the hi- hierophant.
0: That's what and it was, i was yeah. like
1: i know that all of this symbolism is speaking male but like i see a woman in the card mm. and many of her figures are kind of androgynous and a lot of her depictions of typically like masculine cards such as the knight of swords the knight of wands they have quite feminine features like curly hair and rosy lips and and things like this so she also included some of her suffrage friends in the cards So Melinda Boyd Parsons in the biography suggests that Pamela may have also attributed some of the Arthurian symbolism and the Grail quest with women's quest for political, social, and spiritual equality. Um, She quotes historian Christine Paulson, who uh, links the popularity of Grail angels as images of, quote, female protection and spiritual authority to the importance of women in the spiritualism and suffrage movements.
0: Well, see, this is so interesting because this, again, comes back to something that we talk about and touch on so, so often about this period of history and why this period of history interests us so much is because women were finding these incredibly subversive Mm -hmm. ways to enact female power absolutely and pamela coleman smith's influence on the tarot just is
1: one more example of this yeah and also sadly represents the way that the contributions of women in these spheres are yes. so often overlooked because she devalued. was paid almost nothing for this work. And she. why she, does
0: that not surprise me?
1: She was not entitled to royalties. And, and her, she, her name's not on the deck. It's not until you recently. Don't, you don't think of her as the Pamela Coleman Smith tarot. No.
0: That's not what you it's think.
1: It's only just started to be referred to as either the Ryder White Smith deck or the Whitesmith deck, yeah, and yeah. So she didn't receive any royalties for her contribution. She was just paid one, not huge, lump sum. And I think, oh God, that's yeah. No, there's a lot to- of
0: cards to illustrate mm-hmm. in it's that. A deck. Lot.
1: Yeah, and it, I mean, she did a lot of illustration work in her time. But to think that you can make such a significant, so significant contribution not just to art but to an entire movement Mm. and not receive your rightful dues that's really sad and awful Mm. and it is probably largely because she was a woman and possibly a woman of color like she was other yeah but as we've kind of mentioned she was very feminist, very subversive in her representations of gender. And of course, I think it probably goes without saying, she became quite involved in the suffrage movement. And she joined the suffrage atelier who produced plays and artwork for the movement. So she kind of produced like posters and handbills for them. And Edie Craig was also involved in the performances of the movement. Um, She later in life continued to illustrate. She contributed to work such as Bram Stoker's Lair of the White Worm, Which, yes, which is about a woman who transforms into a serpent to wreak havoc, and I would like to know why that's not more popular than Dracula. (laughs) Who can say? And Bluebeard, one of our favourite fairy tales. I know. As the war broke out, she made posters for charities such as the Polish Victims Relief Fund, and when you look at these posters, you can definitely see that this is her work. Mm. Like she has quite a uh, Pamela Coman Smith style. Yeah,
0: there's a specific style, isn't there? And I've read somewhere as well about her style kind of being compared to a, you know that kind of much more I don't know, like we we've mentioned that that word naive before yeah. as well, but compared to that kind of much more feminine style that maybe people like Aubrey Beardsley were kind mm. of you know in a way associated with his mm-hmm. illustrations much more effeminate yep. illustrations. Yep. Like it's a very gendered world. Illustr- and because, to be honest, like one of my favourite topics in the world is children's illustrations. Like yes. illustrations of fairy tales and it folklore is, is it's a huge thing for me. The Johnson sisters. Oh, the Graham Johnson <laughs> twins. Let's not go down that path just yet. But thinking about those different illustrators who were of her time as well and how she was associated with them and the different gendered ways Mm. that these illustrators worked. Her art is very much an effeminate Mm. art and it's seen that way and it's positioned that
1: way and it's valued that way. Yes, which kind of sadly brings us to her later life where she wasn't very well off despite all of this work that she produced she let's think about how many worlds she was involved in as an artist she didn't really have much to show for her in terms of money by the end of her life which again i think is definitely linked with that whole idea of the gendering of her art she did inherit a little bit of money from her uncle at the end of the war and she moved to cornwall where she established a vacation home for catholic priests as you do. Because she – actually, something I didn't mention is that she had converted to Catholicism. I think we did
0: just touch on that. Yes,
1: earlier. which I think also makes sense because Catholicism is very much – has a lot of symbolism, mm. a lot of ritual, which yeah. I think makes sense. She reestablished um, this little chapel there, which was actually for a while the only Catholic chapel in Cornwall, which was called Our Lady of the Lizard. Um, and that's <laughs> because it was called the Lizard, like the area, the yeah. plot of land was called the Lizard, that's not good. because – not it's because like I'm a lizard getting, queen. Like, out there. Yeah. yeah. I am the lizard, lizard queen! queen. Although that would be cool. And now here we get into another element of her identity that is up for debate, I suppose, and I think quite important to think about when we think about Pamela Smith, And that is that she lived for 20 years after this with her companion, Nora Lake. Now, we don't know whether the, the two of them had a relationship, but many
2: suspect that they may have. She never married. She was not interested in men. She didn't have any children. Um, I don't know a whole lot about the relationship between Nora and herself. Nora was married previously, it appears, but her husband died in the early 20s. And I don't have extensive correspondence between the two. What I did find is a series of really beautiful inscriptions to each other. They had kind of pet names for each other, uh, and they would write these on books. And it did appear to be a very loving, close, intimate relationship, but more than that, you know, would be speculation. But, you know, spending as much time as I have reading her stuff, I will say that she was not interested in romantic Uh, heterosexual relationships in the kind of traditional sense.
0: So she did spend her later years with Nora... Yes. Sorry. They were companions, yep. whether they were lovers or not, we can't say for sure, but they lived out their mm. last days together.
1: Yeah, pretty much. They moved together to Exeter and then to Gorsland in the 1940s, but things were starting to get a little bit tough financially. As I said, she she was still painting and illustrating, but she wasn't really doing well and had to start selling her work, and a lot of this is probably because of being ripped off from the tarot, <laughs> hey. and unfortunately, I guess this kind it kind of brings us to the end of our story, but she did die penniless in Cornwall in 1951. She was 73.
0: What a familiar but utterly <sighs> devastating story.
1: I don't know how many of our stories have ended this way. But Brilliant artist dies penniless and
0: unrecognised, <sighs> yep. while someone else has benefited wholeheartedly yep. from
1: their output. Yeah, great. <laughs> But it's I, such a common story. I would like to think that she and Nora lived out these financially difficult times happily together. That's how I'm going to imagine them. That's how I'm choosing to imagine them. Yeah.
0: yeah. Imagine Money it. didn't matter. They yeah. had each other. Let's go with that. They
1: did have to sell a lot of her paintings and drawings at auction to pay off her debts when she died, though. Mm. Yeah. So it's
0: a little bit of a sad ending. But let's
1: not remember her that way. <laughs> let's not dwell. Let's remember her for the person that she was an artist, illustrator, publisher, writer. Folklore Storyteller Live performer So many things Tarot illustrator Occultist Synesthetic artist Shit at all This list goes on Yeah But I
0: think You know This has probably been The the series of artists Hasn't it And I've got a couple more artists That I want to talk Mm. about In the near future But I do think it is a really interesting thing to look at these female artists throughout history because so often they do go Mm unrecognised and their work just gets swept under the rug and it's not until, you know, centuries later for some of these women. within the
2: project
1: of feminist revisionism.
0: That we start to Mm. uncover these women and to value their work.
1: Yeah. It shouldn't take this long, Mm. but at least we're getting there. I mean, that's something.
0: At least with Pamela Coleman-Smith, I mean, for her, it's perhaps a shorter period of time than it is for so many of our other artists that we've covered. Yeah, Um, it only took
1: her, what, 60 years after her death to be properly recognised. you
0: know, so that gap's closing (laughs) slowly,
1: isn't it? The copyright has only just run out probably.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, but look, I I really have enjoyed this story because – Obviously not enjoyed the sad, penniless endings that they no. come to. But I, I think that for us especially, this particular artist is such an important artist mm. because her influence is not just about it's lovely illustrations in books or, you know, this kind of this beautiful art that, that's out there in the world, but it's actually about the art that she's made that is interacted with genuinely on a daily basis around the globe that has this symbolism that constantly feeds into people's lives Mm -hmm. and that is influential. And I think it's fascinating to know that now her story is being told and now her influence on that is being recognised. Yeah,
1: and that we should also start to recognise and remember her for the woman she was beyond the tarot as well. If this is how we come to her, that's great but we should use this as our
2: starting point. But I do think in addition, you know, if people come to her from her tarot, I think that's great. But I think it's, you know, important to know that she did a lot of other things, right? She was the first non-photographic artist that Steglitz exhibited as part of his little galleries of the photo Secession in 1907, right? She had two little magazines, one that she co-edited with Jack Yates, William Butler Yeats's brother, another one, The Green Sheaf, that she did by herself. She had a feminist press, The Green Sheaf Press, you know, that she put out herself and hand-colored herself and cranked out on her own press, most of it. You know, she w- did a lot of stage design. She did a lot of illustrations. She did her folklore work. And I do think all of those facets help paint a fuller picture of who she is. And that's what i Feel my role is to do to kind of fill in some of the gaps in her life as best as I can.
1: And if you would like to dive as deeply into the life of Pamela Coleman-Smith as we have had the pleasure to do over the last few weeks, I definitely recommend getting your hands on the beautiful Pamela Coleman-Smith, The Untold Story by Stuart Kaplan, Elizabeth Foley O'Connor, who we have been hearing so much from today, as well as Mary Kay Greer and Melinda Boyd Parsons. It is a stunning book filled with her illustrations illustrations and if you are particularly if you're into your tarot it is a collection it's something mm. you should add to your collection it's just a beautiful object isn't yes. it it's gorgeous it's an art book about an artist i mean yeah. hey what could you love more yeah Yeah,
0: so thank you so very much for joining us today on this particular journey, which has been, I think, one that's been close to our hearts, Very close to our hearts.
1: And a very big thank you to Elizabeth Foley O'Connor for spending the time chatting to us and answering our questions about Pamela Common smith today. We were so lucky to have her expertise on
0: board. And next time around, we're going to be going to uh, another one of Mm. our favourite places, maybe another one of of Lauren's particularly (laughs) favourite. Places And we're going to have another expert on board, aren't we? We are, yeah. We're going to be we're talking. so
1: lucky. We're going again into more of our deviant women, not necessarily because they did amazing art. Cause, not because we're celebrating not them Not because so we're celebrating much. them, but maybe because they did some maybe not so great things. Let's see where this takes us. Yeah. Anyway,
0: but, yes, it's going to be uh, an interesting one. We're going to be having a very special guest that we're yep. very
1: excited about, but you'll just have to wait and see. We will we'll be announcing that. Very soon. And again, apologies. The episode is a little bit late today. You can blame Alicia's lack of a voice. Hey, I need to cough.
0: Has that demonstrated
1: my sickness to you? Uh, Unfortunately, when you are recording a podcast, it's pretty important that one of the hosts is able to speak. speak.
0: Yeah, that's true. We have had to wait until I was (laughs) capable of speech. But fortunately, at least vaguely capable of speech today. So thank you so much once again for joining us. And, of course, as always, if you'd like to support us and our endeavours and keep us fed and (laughs) alive and
1: going in the world, you can do so via Patreon. It's as little as $2 dollars a month and you get behind the scenes, episodes, animation, for reels. Hey, and maybe even some more miniature theater. Eventually. You've been inspired now. Or you can buy some of our merchandise on Etsy. We have pins and t-shirts. They're really good. And if you can't afford to support us financially, you can support us by spreading the good word about the podcast. Tell your friends, jump onto iTunes and give us a review, subscribe. We are now also on Spotify. Yeah, we're on Spotify. Hey. So that's another great way you can support us. And you can follow us at Deviant Women. We're on all the socials. Are we? All of them? Yeah, pretty much. Most of them? Many of them. I don't know. The big ones. Okay, sure.
0: But until next time, I think that's about it for for, for now. That's so it for now. make sure you get out your tarot deck or just, you know, it doesn't have to be tarot. Go to Pamela, however you're going to go to her. <laughs> but until then, immerse yourself
1: in yep. the art. And thank you to Brendan Davies for the sound and India Hui for the music. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.